Welcome to Spotlight McCall, conversations with local luminaries on their inspiration, creativity, and vision. Today we are featuring Andrew Mitzer, Executive Director for the West Central Mountains Economic Development Council. That's a lot of syllables. I'll wager folks don't really know what Andrew does. I can tell you he instigates or attends a lot of meetings and has a crazy scheduled week. When people complain that nothing is being done in our area about housing, broadband, recycling, or trail access, they don't know about all the work behind the scenes. That is one reason why we're here today. Andrew holds a bachelor degree in political science, a master of public administration, and a master's certification in community and regional planning, all from Boise State University. That means he's versed in economic development, strategic planning, marketing, operations, journalism, and public policy. So you've got a really cool background, and I want to hear from you a little bit more about whatever all that means. You have made all of that into a really interesting career. Yeah, you bet. Uh, Thanks for having me, Renee. It's a pleasure Mm -hmm. to speak with you today. You know, I've always employed sort of a follow your nose mentality when it comes to my career and been really fortunate in a lot of ways. Public administration on its nose isn't the most interesting or sexy thing in the world. You know, if you get to work with communities and work uh, with stakeholders across a lot of different spaces, some of the ones you mentioned, housing, workforce development, broadband, infrastructure, stuff like that, it can be a lot of fun. You know, I tend to just sort of do a listen first approach. I like to hear out what's going on in the community and make sure that the work that I'm doing alongside my board is well vetted and it really is a true reflection of what people would like to see. Tell us about your background in Boise because you did some really interesting things there. You started Boise's first international travelers hostel. You worked for the Department of Commerce. You did a lot of interesting things that prepared you for your job now. Sure. Yeah, it's been kind of a fun ride. You go back to 2010, we're kind of in the the throes of the Great Recession, and I had been working um, out in North Carolina prior to that, actually, doing some real estate development work um, for a, a hedge fund out there, and things dried up. So I came back to Boise, and that's where I, I kind of view the start of my career for all intents and purposes. I set out in kind of dark economic times to build something cool, and so I found a little uh, former office space on the corner of 8th and Bannock in downtown Boise, and I built out a 24-bed international traveler's hostel, kind of built the program from scratch, opened those doors, ran that company for about three and a half years, um, decided it was time to pursue some additional education. And from there, I ended up selling the company, and then in a span of 30 days due to some economic realities, and some issues with our property management company at the time. I ended up having to dissolve the company before the final purchase and sale could go through. So I actually just washed my hands of it. Um, That set me on a path towards getting my master's degree in public administration, working for the Idaho Department of Commerce. Um, For a brief stint, I was one of their interns doing recreation tourism uh, marketing and doing some native content uh, work for their tourism division. Uh, That turned into a part-time position as the interim director or manager of the Idaho Global Entrepreneurial Mission, which was a program that does technology transfer for the state of Idaho. That was a really great experience for a short period of time. And then I got plucked up by Stoltz Marketing Group, where I kind of learned my marketing chops and was able to be a copywriter and account executive um, working with a lot of different brands, public-private nonprofit companies, um, figuring out kind of what the best way to elevate their brands was and get them more sales. So I did that for about a year and a half, 
uh, and then followed my nose over to the public, back to the public sector, and uh, I actually ran the Idaho Star Motorcycle Safety Program through College of Southern Idaho. I ran the operations statewide for that program. Star Motorcycle Safety Program? What, what is that all about? Well, if you've ever seen um, the people riding those little 200cc bikes uh, around in circles on the parking lot at the middle school in McCall, that was us. And so we trained people through some partnerships with the Idaho Transportation Department on basically best practices for how to ride a motorcycle safely on Idaho roads. You love motorcycles. This is one of your passions. It is. I love things with motors, and I love things with two wheels. It's all good there. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun for me. You know, it sounds like you got the perfect training to come to McCall and do what you're doing now. Yeah, I would say, you know, things lined up just right. Um, I was very fortunate to to get some good mentorship throughout my career, my early career. And, yeah, things landed just right for me, and I'm really happy that they ended up the way they did. So tell us about that transition, because the Economic Development Council was a new thing. In many ways, you have created your own job with, of course, the guidance from the board. And a lot of this is you bringing your skills and experience into it. Um, To some extent. So I guess a a point of clarification there. There was a previous iteration of the Economic Development Council that had a director, um, worked pretty closely with the county. And then from about, I believe, 2012 until 2016, when I was hired, it it kind of was mostly just a volunteer board during that window of time. And so Mm -hmm. it was at the time Valley County Economic Development Council, and we kind of brought it back to life with um, the partnership from Valley County, uh, as well as Idaho Department of Commerce, they're a strong granting partner and programming partner with us, Idaho Department of Labor, and so we were able to put that all together, and when they got funding for my position, I was able to come on full-time, and that's where I lateraled out of the STAR program with CSI and came over to work in the McCall-Donnelly-Cascade, New Meadows area. It was initially funded by, you said, the county and the Department of Commerce? Yeah, county, cities, chambers, and that are Department of Commerce, and it kind of came on the coattails of the America's Best Communities competition, if you remember that. Yeah. Yeah, that was the instrument that kind of put this on the forefront. I just love that that was all a collaboration. All these organizations got together and said, we want to do this. Absolutely, yeah. It, you know, it speaks to um, sort of one of those soft needs that we didn't know, didn't know we had as a region, which is regionalism. Some of these topics we're talking about, like housing, for instance, you know, you can fix the housing challenge potentially in one community, but it's going to reverberate out that that challenge is going to exist elsewhere. And the fact, for instance, that the majority of people uh, who work in McCall live out of city limits and commute to work, I think, speaks to the fact that, you know, McCall's housing challenge is inextricably linked to that of Donnelly's, Cascades, New Meadows, and vice versa. A lot of people live in other communities and commute in and out, you know, as needed. When we're talking about these challenges and opportunities in our economy, I think it's really important to understand that um, many of these problems, they're regional in nature and they require regional solutions. And so we have to work together kind of whether we like it or not. That's such an important reframe or framework that we look at it look at everything as regional and that we can't just isolate ourselves in our little communities and try to solve things, that we're going to be stronger and more resilient if we do it cross-community as a region. Absolutely. There's another layer to that too, Renee, which is we always say look up. Mm. You can look up as far as you see 
policies cascade and vice versa, and then, you know, we can work on programming at that regional level, or you can look up at the national or global level. And so I think our organization does a really good job of bringing in broader resources and broader strategic thinking around national trends, um, social opportunities, things like that, that can really help to inform best practices at the local level. And so that's one of those things that's not super tangible, but as soon as you start to see it play out, you know, in local programming, and it adds a lot of value. That makes so much sense to me. Can you give us a really concrete example of that actually happening, boots on the ground? I would say probably the best example of that would be some of the work we've done on broadband. We have heard ad nauseum that there's huge challenges with broadband, especially that kind of five, six weeks during the middle, smack dab in the middle of summer, July into August, um, where you can't make a phone call. Um, regionally, right. the kinds of things that people really um, have some heartburn with, both point of sale at the business and enterprise level, and then at the individual level, like it's a community health issue where you can't access telehealth or call 911 for that matter, stuff like that. Um, you know, we know it to be a prolific challenge across the region. And broadband is that infrastructure is not something that is viewed as um, a local challenge. It's more of a, a southwest Idaho or statewide or northwest challenge. And so we convened a group of about 70 stakeholders. Some of them were um, industry leaders in broadband. We brought in people from, you know, Washington, D.C., from Minnesota, from Oregon, who had done some cool projects, as well as some folks from around the state of Idaho. And we kind of just looked at best practices and realized what our opportunities were, and that helped us to level set the discussion about what should each community do. You know, we won't take any credit. The, the staff at the city of McCall has done wonderful work with their rapid McCall concept, and they're, they're moving forward with some of those concepts um, on their own. But we like to think that our process for bringing information to the table and bringing a network of professionals who have a really good 40,000-foot view of that challenge to the table has informed that process. And we think that that's going to not only lead to greater success with the Rapid McCall platform, but it's also probably going to enhance um, Donnelly, Cascade, New Meadows, their ability to build out their middle mile and um, get high-speed internet to their residents and visitors alike. Well, just some specific outcomes. I love that you brought together 70 different people. Tell us a little bit more about what can we expect, what's happening behind the scenes. Sure. You know, the next step on broadband, for instance, is going to be the state of Idaho just, I believe, authorized uh, a broadband professional in the Idaho Department of Commerce to sort of spearhead how we advance rural and local broadband capacity, whether it's a community fiber platform or working with the incumbent providers to enhance what they've already got. What getting everyone together on a regional basis did was it made sure that Cascade had the same access to process and information as McCall did. And it made mm -hmm. sure that the network of people from the state, federal, um, and private industry sectors all had the same access to the same body of information so that decisions could be made more readily. As I'm sure most people are aware, broadband's a big, big elephant in the room, and it's very complex, and um, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And so I think what we were able to do is kind of break down that misinformation and um, give everyone an opportunity to move forward with the plan to build out their infrastructure in a way that really makes sense for their community. And uh, we took out a lot of that guesswork on the front end. So are you looking at acquiring funding in order to lay fiber optic? What will be happening that people can sort of look forward to? So going forward, um, the communities will have an opportunity to determine um, if they want to First of all, pursue additional broadband capacity in their community, and if they choose to do that and their leadership chooses to do that, then we have a body of resources to work with incumbents to enhance their 
So incumbents being like your Sparklight Cable One Frontier, which I believe is now going to be Zipply, um, you work with those folks to make sure that they know what the market demand and, and capacity needs to look like. The other option would be a community fiber option, which is more similar to the Rapid McCall platform where um, the city uh, or county could lay fiber and then have uh, private providers hook up to that fiber backbone and then offer service to the community. So it's called a community fiber platform. That platform is um, modeled after the city of Ammon in southeast Idaho. They've seen a lot of success with that. And a third option um, would be to, you know, encourage additional participation from new providers to come in and work with building out new fiber infrastructure and adding some competition to the market. So those are kind of the three areas that we're going to see on sort of an a la carte menu or some version of those. And as soon as we get the guidance from the state of Idaho, then um, I could see Cascade, Donnelly, and New Meadows all pursuing some version of that for their residents. Question mark of how we get into a starter for that, but now we know what the, the options look like. And can we say that you're kind of a hub to help people connect and have conversations. One of the cities come to you and say, hey, what is Sparklight doing? Are you able to sort of connect conversations so that we can reduce duplication and really support people in collaborating? Bingo. Yeah, I think that's what we do for sure. We are kind of the tip of the spear for regional information sharing. Again, in those key spaces, housing, workforce development, infrastructure, pathways, recreation, those are kind of the spaces we operate in. And yeah, if somebody has a question or a need or an idea, then we try to elevate that through our collaborations and our partners are vital to our success. So I think we just hit on what you really do. You're the center of a lot of these conversations helping connect different organizations and entities so that we actually move forward and get things done. Exactly, yeah. What can you tell us about what's happening sort of behind the scenes with housing? Well, housing is kind of one of those, it's an amoeba (laughs) is how I view it. It's an interesting challenge in a community that has uh, such a high proliferation of second homes. Right now, we're working with a couple of tactical instruments, one being Opportunity Zones, which is a, a federal capital gains tax benefit for investors um, to deploy their funds in in our area. Uh, We have two opportunity zones defined. One is in the Meadows Valley in North Adams County, and the other uh, encompasses a portion of McCall down to Donnelly uh, and includes all of Donnelly. We're working with developers to try and get either market rate or deed-restricted below-market price housing built. Now, the challenge, Renee, is, and I think we all know this, that we have a short building season. We have a limited supply of skilled labor. And then building materials costs have gone up precipitously in the last couple of years. And so the challenge is finding the right mixture of land prices, available infrastructure, incentives, developer who's willing to take on the risk for potentially a year or two to permit and build out a project. And that secret sauce is getting more difficult to to put together. Our role in, in the discussion is we work with developers to get them the resources they need. Last summer and fall, we we conducted a a survey of employees around the region from every sector and every community, and we had 603 responses, and we asked people how secure they were in their housing so that we could share that information with developers so when they're putting together a project portfolio, they know exactly what price point they need to hit, where they should be building it, what components and what types of products um, in the housing uh, market are important to consumers at various levels. Mm-hmm. And we learned a ton from that research, and that information has actually done a really been a really effective tool in, in helping developers either greenlight or or revise projects to make sure that they're successful. We're currently working with a developer who's working on uh, they'd like to do 42 units in McCall uh, market rate units, 
we're working on collaborating with them and some local employers to make sure that they have access to those units in the long term so they don't become second homes or short-term rentals. We've used that information also to certify financing for a number of developers, um, one in Cascade in particular um, who's doing 18 units. We were able to be the authorizing entity to certify their bank's need for Community Reinvestment Act, which basically means that we, we enabled them to get financing through their underwriting process um, through mm-hmm. using some of this data information. I think those are real tangible results, and we're going to see more of that as we, we use this information for uh, the greater good on the housing front. Now I know why you're so busy. That alone could be enough of a full-time job. For sure. Yeah, it takes a lot of work. We, we What we do differently from other organizations, Renee, is that we, if there's a gap in information or a lack of data, we go and get it so that we know how to frame yeah. the challenge and the, the solution. And what I notice about you is that you're kind of all over the place. You're talking with a lot of people. Tell us, for example, you just had a meeting beginning on a carpenter apprentice program. Yeah, that's another great example of um, of where we're kind of we, we play facilitator in a lot of these things. Uh, we also mm-hmm. run the programming in a lot of cases. And so a couple years back, we uh, built out our economic development and online education portal on our website. You can visit that at wcmedc.org. And that resource, we realized, uh, was a nice aggregator. It brought together a lot of resources. Whether you're an individual, an entrepreneur, or an established business, you could kind of self-identify on our, our portal and go find the resources you're looking for, whether it's education or, you know, SBA loans or whatever that might be. But we realized that wasn't really enough to just have the resource live on our website. And so we went out and did some more analysis. We did some more research. We brought in the Idaho Policy Institute and asked them to help us develop some research around what industry needs from its workforce. Uh, and then we also developed a survey that was deployed at the school district level to ask juniors and seniors what they aspire to after they graduate. And we paired those two surveys together, and we learned a lot about what our gaps are in employment and what our talent retention headwinds are as well. It was a fun, really fun project. We learned a ton. We got to work with our chamber partners. What sort of jumped out at you that was kind of surprising from those surveys? Well, you know, we learned that almost a quarter of kids in the McCall-Donnelly area have a strong desire to pursue or at least explore healthcare as uh, an option for them. And so that information. Really? Though, yeah, absolutely. Huh. So we know that, know that that information is going to be used by the school district um, throughout their five-year strategic plan. Uh, we also learned that there's a huge desire for career and technical education resources in Cascade and New Meadows. And so um, Cascade is in the process of hiring uh, a CTE instructor, CTE instructor in agricultural education. So that data has gone to good use. And then to your point about the construction and trades thing, we're, we're building programs. Um, we're calling them pre-apprenticeships. We ran one last spring in McCall in culinary arts. We had three local chefs teach the curriculum as well as Central District Health Department did a food safety or food handler's license as part of the curriculum. We partnered and put the whole thing together with University of Idaho's Valley County Extension Office as well as Idaho Department of Labor. So we had some really strong partnerships to help deploy this thing. And it was industry-driven. And at the end of the day, we had room for 16 people. It was taught at the McCall Community Center. We had people from Cascade and New Meadows who attended. Graduated 14 people of our 16 students. We had a six-person waiting list. And seven people Mm -hmm. at the end of the day went to work in that field. So we view that as a really strong win for workforce development. And we were able to deploy that program in a span of 30 days. It was really efficient. 
And it sounds like it's a great template for potentially other similar occupations. What else can you adapt that for? Yeah, exactly. So we're doing another culinary program uh, with the coronavirus thing. We're we're postponing a couple of things right now, but we're going to do another culinary program with Chef Morton from Remington's and a few local chefs in the Cascade area. We'll deploy that um, sometime this spring or summer, depending on, on when we're able to get back to work there. We're working with the Idaho Association of General Contractors right now and the Idaho Workforce Development Council and the Governor's Office to deploy a construction and trades pre-apprenticeship as well. We'll be bringing out Idaho State University and their construction team and working with some local employers to to get a construction and trades uh, program built and and off the ground. It's already put together. We just haven't marketed it yet because we're waiting on a couple of different approvals for insurance at this point. Um, that'll likely go this summer or fall. You know, we can duplicate this for any industry as long as we have willing industry partners. And so we're really excited about using this pre-apprenticeship platform to get people work ready and into the into the job market mm-hmm. um, to help curb some of these workforce challenges that we've been seeing for the last 10 years. And there's even logistical crossover in what you're doing. It's great to run these apprenticeship programs if you have housing while they're taking the apprenticeship program. So there's a lot of um, overlap in what you're doing. Absolutely. We, we always look for ways where we can cross-pollinate um, or create efficiencies. Yeah. And so a lot of our target audience for our workforce programs are students who are maybe juniors or seniors or freshly graduated, and they're still able to live with their parents. And so if we can get them into a career track that's sustainable, pays a good wage, you know, they don't have to worry about housing for maybe year one, year two. They can make a little bit of money, and then they can lateral into a desirable housing base. Right. What are some other projects right now that you want to tell us about? You know, one of the things that I'm most excited about personally and professionally is the work we've been able to do in the Pathways space, Pathways and Recreation. So um, yeah. last fall, I wrote a grant for the National Park Service for technical assistance, uh, working with our partners couple different nonprofit and government sector partners. We put together a grant application, basically do best practices for how do we collaborate locally and regionally around pathways and recreation and mm-hmm. conservation. And so we were awarded that grant. Only 40 organizations nationally received that National Parks grant. And so we were competitive and successful in that space. And National Parks will be coming out this year to help us identify basically strategies and structures for prioritization of pathways. It sounds more glamorous. It's way cool. Yeah, it's a super fun opportunity for groups like Central Idaho Mountain Biking Association, Central Idaho Trail Riders Association, Chambers, you know, Valley Soil and Water Conservation District, the cities, the county, to all get together and basically say, you know, we'd like to build out our recreation infrastructure a certain way. Some prioritization, you know, Simba's working on that the around the lake trail in McCall, which is an amazing asset and it's going to be such a, a boon for um, trail users in, in the long term. So maybe that's Mm -hmm. priority number one is to get that completed. But then shortly after, maybe we should be looking at trying to extend the Crown Point Trail north of Cascade to connect Cascade to Sugarloaf or Sugarloaf all the way to Donnelly. You know, do we need to be looking Mm -hmm. at how do we connect Donnelly to Tamarack for the assets and amenities that are there? You know, those are the kinds of things that we're trying to prioritize right now. And the beauty of this platform is National Parks is going to help us by offering their expert advice, they've got um, people who've done this kind of thing nationally in some of the most prolific spaces around the country, and they're going to come here and give us some case studies on how to put this together, and then they're going to help us customize something that really works for us locally. I'm excited because, you know, it plays really well with, um, if anyone's paid attention to the single-track sidewalk ordinance that was passed by Valley County back in February, our organization were the architects of that platform, and 
having national right. parks come and help us prioritize, that will help us get trails built to connect all the communities. Tell us what a single track sidewalk is. So it's basically a dirt path, 24 to 48 inches wide, that meanders between the drainage ditch on the side of a, a county road and the fence mm-hmm. line. So it, it resides and is built and constructed and operates entirely on public land within the county road right away. So it doesn't have to go on any private land. And it's basically a detached sidewalk that um, is usable five to seven months a year during dry season and gets pedestrians off the road. So there's a community health benefit there. It encourages mm-hmm. people to go out and walk um, or hike or ride their bikes. It kind of advances some of our recreation tourism offerings as well. So we consider it a triple win for community health, community vitality, and for our economy. So between Pueblo Lindo and the Bear Basin access, is that an example, that trail that was constructed a couple of years ago? That's a beautiful example of a single-track sidewalk. Okay. It's not really a sidewalk, then. It's more of a trail. Yeah, that that one's probably a bit more robust than what we're going to see elsewhere in the county. But um, it's, yeah, it's basically a, a, a robust pedestrian path. type of infrastructure we're looking at looks similar to that, but it might be a little bit smaller scale with fewer features. Dirt, not concrete. Correct. I like that. That's more affordable because when we hear projected costs of blacktop or sidewalk, it's millions of dollars. When they were talking about from the middle school down to the post office, it was sort of ridiculous. And this sounds a lot more affordable. Yeah, it's more affordable. It's much easier to maintain. Front end mm-hmm. and back end costs are way, way cheaper. And the cool part about this is that it can be administered, constructed, and maintained in the long term by nonprofit partners rather than being a responsibility of the county or the city. And we're excited about it because it doesn't put any burden on the taxpayer or on the public. It's entirely driven by the nonprofit and private sector, the backing and support of the county and cities who this will benefit. We went out of our way to design the ordinance and the platform in a way where it was a low impact or no impact to the the taxpayer and something that people could really rally behind. You just pointed towards a topic I hadn't thought we would talk about today, and that is the intersection in our community of the nonprofit and municipalities and government. That's something that you do pretty well, and maybe we all do really well here. Yeah, I mean, I like to think so. We have some amazing nonprofit partners, and I have a sort of a thesis on on the nonprofit community, especially in a, an area like uh, the West Central Mountains. You know, we do the work that the private sector doesn't want to do or can't afford to mm-hmm. do or that mm-hmm. the government's not allowed to do. And so we kind of oh. fill in that middle space for community infrastructure, and we have well over 100 nonprofits in this area who do, many of them doing amazing work in a lot of these spaces. I think the challenge becomes making sure that we're all working together and communicating in a way that that gets things done efficiently and doesn't duplicate efforts. This is important. Part of what you do then is you look at, okay, what can this nonprofit do? What is this government entity allowed to do? And what will this perhaps public organization, what are they willing to do? And then you're able to sort of cobble together an alliance. Exactly, yeah. I mean, these things sometimes happen haphazardly. Sometimes it's just a match made in heaven. You know, we'll Mm -hmm. be sitting around the same table, having the same conversation we've been having for 20 years, and then all of a sudden the lights start going off and we realize that there's a huge opportunity for collaboration or execution somewhere in the mix. Those are the best days in my job uh, when I realize that we maybe have a, a cool new opportunity that um, everyone's going to benefit from. And we've all sat around in meetings where we just talk and we have a vision and we say, wouldn't this be really cool? 
And lately, I've had my eye on, let's implement. Let's start getting things done. You're pretty good at that. You're pretty good at saying, let's just do this. I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I, I hope so. That's kind of been our, our methodology all along. Candidly, we're funded on an annual basis, a number of different partners, including the Idaho Department of Commerce. So we think it's vital to continue to build on the platforms we've already been pretty diligent about establishing. Um, we think it's really important to show something for our efforts every single year. And so our strategic plan and our work plan, it's, it's available on our website, um, is a real reflection of, of that work. And it, it points us in a good direction each year because when I do the, our end-of-year review, we've been very fortunate to typically hit 95-plus percent of our intended workload for the year. I don't think we've ever come up short. In fact, a lot of years we overperform and do additional items. We think it's important to our funding partners, our strategic partners, and otherwise that they see some benefit from our work. That's awesome. Well done. And you've just touched on a benefit of your organization being a nonprofit. You have to do your job. You have to prove that you get things done because that's required in order for you to keep going and to continue getting funding. You actually have to implement Absolutely. Yeah, we we don't have the benefit of multi-year realities at this point. And so mm. we, we do have our foot on the gas pedal year in, year out. And so between our economic summit, which is October 5th this year at Tamarack, and our programming in the spring, and then our grant requirements for pathways and our operating funds and all that, we have to keep pretty steady flow of work going, primarily to keep the organization running in a good way, but also to make sure that um, we're advancing programs and projects that the community wants to see done. Right. You know, we, right. we have a theory, theory or a process where we never want to be the roadblock. We're always going to be the, the group that kind of advances or nudges things forward mm-hmm. because you see, you see so many things die on the shelf. It's really important to us that we keep things moving. Let's talk about growth and development are often dirty words around here. It's had some challenging conversations around these topics. How do you understand growth and development as being beneficial to a community or something that we want to talk about in terms of civil discourse? Let's be civil in how we talk about these things. You bet, yeah. There's all the basic metrics of growth around tax role and prosperity and sector diversification when you see increased population and and things like that, those can be boons for uh, a number of different spaces in our economy, the retail level, at the community health level, uh, really across the board. And so there's that, but I I think, you know, there's a point of clarification to be made in there um, that's really important. So there's 18 organizations that do economic development at the rural local level across the state of Idaho. We're called EDOs, Economic Development Organizations. And our version of economic development is probably a little bit different than almost everybody else's because we focus on community development first. And so if you look back at what we've already talked about, you know, housing, workforce development, pathways, recreation, infrastructure, those are all things that are benefits to the community. And our goal in doing those things first, being the sort of tip of the spear for us, the reason we do that kind of work first is because we believe that if you make a community the best it can be and you go out of your way to advance the opportunities for local folks first, then mm-hmm. additional investment will flow from that and there's a more organic market-driven reality on the tail end of that. So the reason we are willing to put ourselves out there to do things like pathways or you know workforce development programs for existing local folks is because that helps to build and retain our current infrastructure, our current talent base, and to really make sure that folks who are are here right now are are well taken care of and well supported in what they need. 
I've often said um, that the day that my board requests or requires me to go to a trade show to recruit a new dairy or something like that to come to the area uh, is probably the day that I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that our, our version of economic development is really community development masquerading as economic development. Um, and I, I can say that openly because the benefits that we've proven through that model, um, I, I think, are, are fairly apparent. And the cool part about that is that we have the full support of the state of Idaho and the Idaho Department of Commerce. They've generally said that as long as the local board that supports you encourages that type of economic development or community development, that they're okay with that through our granting pro uh, programs. It's kind of become a win-win. And um, when we talk about growth, I think it's really important for people to know that there's rhetoric there's negativity. There's a lot of four-letter words that kind of flow through people's minds when they think of, of growth, per se. But we're not necessarily advocating for just sheer growth for the sake of growth. We're trying to manage the existing growth that comes our way, and it's going to come our way no matter what we do because we have a great place to live and work. At the end of the day, would you rather have somebody managing that growth, or would you rather have the growth come to you in whatever form it wants to um, and have no checks or balances or systems in place to make sure that a, a you know a new employer or a new organization or an expanding current organization um, has some sensitivity, we want to make sure they're they're paying attention to what we have here first, and then doing what they need to do around that. Yeah, we manage growth. And I love how your board has such a range of people from different industries in the area and different backgrounds, just to help create that ethos of a community organization. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a, just a rock star team on our board, and yeah, they're very diverse and they're very you know open minded in their thinking, and they see things for what they are, and um, mm -hmm. it's just a joy to work for these folks. Let's talk about the pandemic now and how you see it affecting our economy, our community, since we're acknowledging that you're really a community foundation, because a lot's changing right now, and we don't know what will happen in a month, two months. I'm imagining you've thought a lot about this and you've got some ideas. Yeah, without sugarcoating it, it's kind of a scary thing. At the end of the day, uh, measures are being taken every single day to make sure that we're doing the right thing for the community. When I think about this coronavirus thing, it kind of elicits um, a historical feeling for me. My mother was born and raised in Jamaica, and she lived through the polio epidemic, and our economy and our world was much less connected back then. But mm -hmm. people still got through it with limited information. Uh, people still got through it and proved to be resilient by doing their best with what they had. And we have a, a very hearty and robust community up here and a lot of self-sufficient people, and those realities are going to be tested. Mm -hmm. I think the things we can do in the immediate term are to follow the protocol from the Central District Health Department and the Center for Disease Control, try and stop the spread of this thing um, as best we can to really look after our folks who are maybe immune compromised or uh, in their older years. We need to make sure they have the resources um, that they need to, to be okay during this kind of uncertain time. Make sure that we rally around our local businesses as best we can. Things like not hoarding toilet paper and Definitely go out and buy a gift card, even if you, you plan on not using it for a few months. Those are the kinds of things we can do at the local level to make sure um, everyone lands on the other side of this uh, in okay shape. We are a resilient community. I have a feeling you've been doing some things in the background. 
Yeah, we've been we've created a web asset. Uh, it's on our homepage um, that has basically uh, resources and best practices and guidance for individuals as well as businesses during you know as this thing evolves. This is one of those situations where people should generally err on the side of caution, and if we have to be overly conservative about our preparation for this and our social distancing and things like that for two, three, four weeks. In doing that, we avoid maybe a month long or, or all summer long or potentially all year long catastrophe with a lot of uh, loss of human life. I, I think it's important mm-hmm. that we're just doing what we have to do now, short-term pain for the long-term benefit of um, community health. And so I just hope everybody um, who's listening takes heed of what's going on, pays a lot of attention to it, but, you know, live your life. Don't be fearful of this. This is just something that we're going to have to have to kind of live with for a little bit, and we'll, we'll be okay as long as we maintain protocol. This is a great example of service before self. This is where we all, as, mm-hmm. as citizens of the West Central Mountains, have to set aside any of our personal interests, our travel plans, whatever we might have had going on in our lives that, you know, this is going to be an inconvenience for us and see the the greater good. Playing it super safe, I think, is really important. It's part of our sort of civic duty at this point. And we can land in a really okay spot if we pay attention to those things and follow that lead. Um, and if we don't, then we're, we're probably gambling a little bit. We're working diligently with the state of Idaho and our partners to make sure that um, any resources that come through um, through the SBA or otherwise, that businesses that might need short-term financing or grants or loans um, have access to those things at the local level, and we'll just keep paying attention and doing the best work we can with what we've got. So that's what you have your eye on as well right now, is how, in say a month or so, may you need to support local businesses? What opportunities might come our way? They're going to come through you. Potentially, yeah. I mean, we'll make them available. They'll be coming through our partners, actually. So again, we're more of a facilitator. You know, we'll mm-hmm. be we'll be the first to know if there's an SBA program that's really important to our our local businesses, or maybe it's a specific sector. As soon as we hear about that, then we'll we'll push that out through our chamber partners and directly to to industry to make sure they know what their opportunities might look like. You may not even really know right now exactly how you're going to support the community in the coming weeks. It's going to be day by day, week by week, as things evolve, or as you think about something, like here's a way we can support each other. Potentially, yeah. I mean, we do have some really great resources on our website right now, um, including the McCall Area Chambers Business Toolkit for COVID-19. Okay, so you can go to WCMEDC, West Central Mountains Economic Development Council. So we go to the homepage. There it is, COVID-19 Guidance and Best Practices. Yep. And so within that, we've got a little video um, that illustrates where this all came from. So there's a little bit of an educational component on there. And then I dropped one of my favorite quotes from Coretta Scott King in there, um, just to remind us that we're all going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. We've got links to our state and national partners, um, some best practices that we've aggregated from our partners on uh, things that individuals can do. And then we've got some additional resources for things that businesses, nonprofits, and governments can do to help to curb the impacts of this and mitigate the the challenge. All right. This is great. You've got links to things, things individuals can do, things businesses, nonprofits, government can do. This is a great page, Andrew. (laughs) You've done a nice job on this. Good. Let's point everyone to this page, a great sort of clearinghouse for information with some good links. Anything you want to tell the community about moving forward, things we have to look forward to or things you're particularly excited about? Yeah, I think it's really important for folks to keep in mind that our opportunities can, in fact, be our challenges and vice versa. And so how we choose to proceed with our mentality around these things is really important. And so roughly 101 people 
a day move to Idaho, and a lot of them land in the Treasure Valley. And we all know that that has a huge impact on us because we're not that far up the road. And so, you know, when people are looking at something that might feel like a challenge or feel like a negative in their life, um, I would encourage folks to to view the those things through the lens of community development, which is how can we turn this into an opportunity? There's a lot of room for optimism in our community right now and across Idaho mm-hmm. as well. Um, there's a lot of divisiveness in our community uh, as well as nationally, but I think that if we can transcend that and look at this set of challenges and opportunities for what they are, uh, then we can continue to move the needle in some of these really key spaces. I, I just think that um, the sky's the limit for the West Central Mountains. We have an incredible place to live. People love to be here. And so how do we celebrate that and move that needle forward in a way that people enjoy? Thank you, Andrew. Beautifully said. Do you know you're a Stoic? That's the Stoic philosophy, that you take the obstacle and you turn it into the opportunity. You find the way through the obstacle. You're too kind. I love that you've put some broader context to it. That's just always been how, how we do business. But <laughs> if it's Stoic, then that's great. <laughs> that's one of the central ideas of Stoic philosophy, which I've always found really helpful. Take the problem, take the obstacle, take the challenge, and make that part of your path. It's a great application right now for our whole conversation, moving forward as a community, moving forward economically, and moving forward through the pandemic is that we work with it. Absolutely. So if anyone would like to find Andrew, good luck. He's probably at a meeting somewhere between Boise and New Meadows. You may see him at a coffee shop in town or the community hub, our co-sponsor for the podcast. He can always be reached at the website, WCMEDC, West Central Mountains Economic Development Council.org. I'm Renee Silvis with Spotlight McCall. Thank you for listening. Now go and find some inspiration.